Well, um, this morning I have a huge pleasure of introducing the wonderful Faith Brennan to you guys who's going to be preaching um, to us this morning. So Faith is part of the leadership team here at Central uh, with myself and others. Some of you will know her because she's the team leader for missional communities, so especially looks after our leaders and teams of leaders who lead missional communities. So I'm going to pray for Faith, but here at Central preaching is a kind of a 360 degree affair. So if you want to stretch out a hand towards Faith and pray God's blessing both on her and also on yourself as, as we sit and we listen we actually this is a kind of everybody gets to preach together as we listen we receive so if you're able if you stretch out a hand of faith and let's pray for her and pray for ourselves as um, we receive God's word this morning so father we thank you for faith we thank you for the incredible woman um, that she is and that you are making her into (laughs) Thank you, Father, for this word that she has prepared for today, and we pray blessing on it. And we pray for ourselves that you would soften our hearts, that you would make us ready to receive your challenge and your encouragement. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. I can't help thinking that I think the first time I stood here to preach was maybe three or four years ago, and you were honestly a bunch of people I didn't know, strangers, and actually looking around this morning, so many of you now feel like family, friends, people I admire, respect, love, it's great, so nice, good morning friends, if you're not my friend yet, I'm open to extending my friend set, I'm just saying, okay, so today, We are in the second of a three-week Easter series, looking at the last words that Jesus spoke from the cross in the Gospel of Luke. So we started that a couple of weeks ago. So I think we'll just start by reading those verses, and then I'm going to unpack some of what God is saying in the Bible, what those words say to us, and also share some examples of what those words look like in the life of an individual person. So we're in Luke 23. You'll get it on the screen. I'm going old style. I'm going paper. Verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserved. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, 
Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's interesting that the theme of all the songs today is love. It is Easter, so perhaps not a complete coincidence. But actually, those words in the cross all start with love. Because God loves. And it is the strangest thing that God chooses to love human beings. I don't know about you, but I struggle with that sometimes because we're a bit of a weird bunch, aren't we? A little bit fickle, hard to love. Not for God. God loves us. And the things that drive you crazy about the people you live with, your kids, your husband, your wife, people you share a flat with, those little idiosyncrasies, God just finds them so cute because God loves. And that's what love does. I know it's hard to believe, but it's true because I know because it's what love does. And I don't know how many of you walked in here today. All of us who were able-bodied walked in on two legs, didn't we? And did you notice anyone else walking in? Was it remarkable? No. Why is that? Because walking is not remarkable. All able-bodied people can walk, can't they? What about when a little person gets up on two feet and walks for the first time? And what about if that little person is related to you or you feel some deep, close bond with them? Then that walking is a whole other kind of walking, isn't it? I can see all the grandmas and all the mums. Come on, guys, you need to, you need to warm up here because I've seen some of your videos. I've seen some of your faces in the moment. You're like, oh my goodness, look at that. That's the cutest thing. Come on, you can do it. You can do it. It's not that big a deal, really, is it? I mean, no offense, but you know, when I see other people's videos of their little toddler on Facebook walking, I mean, no offense, they are sweet, but I think, yeah, well, whatever. Because they all get up and walk sometime between nine months and maybe up to two, all able-bodied kids get up and walk. But when you love someone, even the littlest thing, their first steps, their little toddler walk is the cutest thing. I don't know about you, but certainly my children and I know my nieces. I better refer to my nieces because one of my children is now a member at this church. So I could get myself into a lot of trouble if I start speaking about his baby words. But um, many of us, we'll have, we, in those years when they were starting to form words, we'll have noticed there was just one or two words that they got completely wrong consistently. Do you know what I'm talking about here? So I had a niece and she hit upon the idea that the word strawberries was actually dopsies. Strawberries does not sound anything like dopsies. And of course, we, the family, we all reinforced this by calling them dopsies because it was so cute. And I know you're all lovely to the children in your world, but honestly, when you hear somebody else doing it and you, are not, you don't have that strong attachment to their child, you think, weird, you sound a little bit strange because love makes us weird. Love makes us do strange things. Love makes us get down on our hands and knees and go, oh, come on, that's so great. Love makes us call strawberries dopsies. Because when you love people, it makes you a little bit crazy. And in that sense, and only in that sense, God is a little bit crazy about human beings. Because he loves. And we know that if we have gone back to the book of Genesis, we know what happens right back in the beginning of the Bible is that God is separated from the object of his unconditional love. And any of you who have experienced that pain of being separated from someone that you love, know it hurts. 
And God moved heaven and earth to put a plan into motion to correct that, to get back into that close and intimate relationship with the people that he loved. And so thousands of years later, God comes to earth as a human being and he lives the life we live. He experiences a human life and all its temptations, all those things that tempt us to do the wrong thing and not the right thing. Day after day, he lived that life and he chose decision after decision to do the right thing. And he lived a sinless life. And now in Luke, we find him choosing to lay down that beautiful life, to take an unjust punishment upon himself. Why? Because in that moment, he becomes the punishment for everything that separates humanity from the God that loves them so passionately. And he stands in the place of every human being. So are we good enough for God? No and yes. On our own, no. With him, yes. And I know over the years, I've clocked up a few years now, so I can say over the years, I think, I have had, and many of you will have had, the privilege of watching dozens and dozens and dozens of people not only receive Jesus as their savior, but go on to walk that out and to see what it means to have Jesus' healing and wholeness. See, relationship with God is not just about, oh, I'm a Christian and I go to church. No, no, not at all. It's about a relationship with a God who continues to pour in healing into our body and our soul. And I have watched especially women whose lives are so broken by things that were not their fault, that are so unjust. And also people who've done things that are their fault, which has separated them from the ability to relate to people, from the ability to love themselves, from the ability to parent well. And I have watched Jesus heal those people as they have followed after him. And that has been a great joy. So for me, Easter is not an event. It's not a one day. Yes, this is Holy Week, but as Clive pointed out next door, actually every week should be Holy Week. Easter is what all our hearts cry for, whether we know it or not. So thinking about this moment in Luke where Jesus is on the cross and this whole exchange, let's just think for a minute. We often focus on the physical pain and my goodness, there would have been tremendous physical pain more than I think I could imagine. And obviously physical pain changes how we're thinking and what we're doing and it, yeah, horrible. However, there is also on top of that and maybe worse than that, the psychological pain of being abandoned by most of his best friends. And I think we can underestimate that. It's easy to forget that Jesus was fully human as well as fully divine. And human beings in moments of pain and agony need friends. And as Jesus is hanging on the cross, taking on himself the punishment for every human being, he becomes, for the first time in his life, cut off from his father. He is cut off from God the Father. He feels what it feels like to be completely alone. 
What would a human being do in a moment like that? You would look, and what does Jesus see? He does have people there. His mom's there. A lot of his female followers are there. And John, his friend John, is there. But we also know because we're human, that in the moment of great weakness, when we look, we don't always focus on the people who are there. We also focus on the people who let us down. And in this moment, one of his very best friends has sold him out, betrayed him for a cause that he believed was greater than Jesus. Judas had sold him out. Peter has denied him. Peter was so embarrassed of his best pal that he denied even knowing him. How would you feel? Think of the, some of the worst moments in your life. If at that moment, your best friend, you heard them outside the door say, oh no, I don't know her. I don't know him. No, no, it's not with me. I'm not with him. And Jesus looks and 12 men that he has poured his life into for three years and he has loved them and he has lived with them and he has taught them and quite honestly put up with them to a great extent because you know what us human beings are like. We, we doubt and we fear and we mess up. And he has encouraged them out on the water, out of the boat, off to preach. And he is entrusting them to carry on the work after he's gone. And he looks out in his greatest moment of pain and also soon to be triumph. And 11 of his best pals are not there. So this is not... This is not just physical pain. Jesus is not superhuman. At this moment, he's still human. About three years ago, I was just at the coffee time after the church that I'm also part of at Press and Pans. And a lady who was there for the first time that day um, got escorted up to me. I think everybody knows if someone looks a bit unusual, we'll just introduce them to faith. I don't know why that is. I'm not sure what I did to merit that, but that's the way it is. So this lady said, Faith, you, you better speak to this lady. And I said, oh, hello, nice to meet you. And she said, I don't know why I'm here. I don't trust church. I don't trust people. I don't trust you. I shouldn't even be here. I think we lasted, I gave her kind of a nice, <laughs> I was like, that's fine. She didn't last very long. But in that moment, I looked in her eyes and I felt some of what God felt. I felt some of God's compassion for her. And I thought, oh my goodness, what does it take to get to the place in your life where you trust nobody? And I was able to say to her, that is okay. Because I knew that God would accept her as she was and it is okay to be how we are. And three years later, that lady has come back and come back and come back to be with our church on Sundays and here and there and in groups and all sorts of things she's experienced because she had chosen to follow Jesus. And I have had the privilege of watching this lady learn to trust. Trust was such a non-concept in her life that she had no close relationships, which meant she was cut off from her three children, from all friends, from all family. But actually, as I got to know her and heard her experience, I realized that 
three or four very significant moments in her life, three or four very important people had betrayed her in ways that nobody should ever be betrayed. And her lack of trust is not because she was just a broken person or a weird person. She was a person who had been hurt incredibly. And what was beautiful was to see our Savior, who knows exactly what it is like to be let down by the people that you've put your trust in, pour his healing into her life step by step. You see, to our God... We're not projects. People are not broken things to be fixed. People are the objects of his unconditional love. And it wasn't a solution and it wasn't my great strategies or anything like that that healed this lady. It was God's relentless, unconditional love. I remember the day that she, she came to church and we were praying for physical healing Oh, if my husband was here, I'd get a row. You're not allowed to see coming to church. We are the church. She came to the building where the church were meeting. And, uh, well, you just never know. He might be, he might listen. Um, and she said, oh, my foot is, her foot was like bent, twisted. I, don't, I think there was an operation involved. I'm the opposite of medical, so I really can't retain facts like that. But her foot was all crooked and weird. It was causing her a lot of pain up her leg, you can imagine. And she said, no, I can't really be prayed for, but maybe I could, maybe I can't, maybe I could. And it turned out that basically her diagnosis was that this would not get any better. This was as good as it was going to get. But we prayed for her anyway, and she allowed that, which was a big step for her. And that was it. And she went home. And then she contacted me and said, you will never guess what. She said, I was sitting in my house with my foot up, because this wee foot caused soreness, so it often was up. She said, I was just sitting in my house with my dog, watching TV, and all of a sudden, it was so weird, my foot just turned itself into place, and it's straight. Isn't that cool? And I wondered about that. Thank you very much. And I wondered about that. And this is only my opinion, but I think God waited till it was just him and her. So that she knew that he loved her, that he was for her, that it wasn't any magical thing any person had done, but that God loved her. And honestly, you know, she's still on the journey, just like we all are, if we're really honest. But she is amazing. That's what Jesus does. Jesus is crucified between two criminals, like he's a criminal. This is not just an execution. This is a public humiliation. We know that the crowd were mocking Jesus. The religious leaders are mocking Jesus. The soldiers are mocking Jesus. Even the criminal beside him is joining in and mocking him. What does the criminal shout? He shouts out, aren't you the Christ? In other words, aren't you the savior? Aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you the one that God's anointed king who's going to save the world? Aren't you the Christ? If you are, then save yourself and save us. In other words, prove it. Come on, do something. And mocking always has that in it, doesn't it? Come on, it's up for a fight. It's goading you, pulling you forward to do something. 
It's so reminiscent of Satan's words to Jesus in the wilderness, isn't it? And Jesus is out in the wilderness fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. It says that Satan comes to him. And what's the first thing that he says? He says, if you are the son of God, then take this stone and turn it into bread. Prove yourself. If you're the son of God, then fall down from the temple and the angels will save you, won't they? If you're the son of God. And Jesus stands in the middle of that and does not prove himself by replying. He proves himself by hanging and dying an unjust death, receiving an unjust punishment because he has a goal in mind. And when we read Hebrews, we know that Jesus was focused on putting human beings and God back together in the relationship that God had always wanted them to be in. And then we have the other criminal, and he's quite different. In the middle of all these mocking voices, and Jesus is in incredible physical pain. He's looking out. Eleven of his friends are not there. This is a very, very challenging moment. There are no words to describe this moment, really, and do it justice. But this other criminal shouts to the first one, listen. He says, don't you fear God, since we're under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. This is a lone voice. There may have been people who were silent, but I'm not hearing any other voices that are for Jesus. And then this man, this criminal, who acknowledges his shortcomings, his sin. And let's be honest, even in those times, you're not going to get crucified for a small thing. So he knows he was a baddie. And he knows Jesus isn't. But he makes this decision. He turns to Jesus and he asks for help. And here's the best help cry he can make. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And we don't know anything else about this man. We don't know how he knew that Jesus was to have a kingdom and that Jesus had said that. We don't know had he been in the crowds hearing Jesus teach. We really don't know. But we do know that in this moment, when everybody else is going one way, he's going another. And he says, Jesus, will you remember me? But he doesn't ask Jesus to rescue him. Everybody else mocks Jesus and says, come on, rescue yourself. The other criminal says, come on, if you're the Messiah, rescue me. Prove it. This man doesn't ask to be rescued. I wonder why. I don't know for sure, but I wonder if it's perhaps because he didn't feel good enough. And then Jesus turns to him and does what Jesus does when we turn to him for help no matter how we feel about ourselves. And he loves him. And he says to him, I say to you today, you are going to be with me in paradise. You've asked me to remember you when I come into my kingdom, but actually what I'm going to do is bring you with me. And he offers him salvation. It's so notable in this passage in Luke that Jesus Christ, who was fully human as well as God, never loses sight of the fact that he is the son of God. Even though his sin that gets put upon him separates him from God, he still calls him father. He still offers forgiveness, prays for forgiveness, 
and he still offers salvation. Jesus knows who he is. He does not care how many mocking voices are out there. I think that's something I know I could, maybe we all could learn something from. And this criminal reminds me of a lady who was not a criminal years ago. I'm going to call her Jane. And um, she'd been around the church and hearing this and hearing that and asking questions. And I had a, a small group thing going on at the time. And she was in it every week. And she was learning about the Bible and hearing the gospel. And, you know, I was running out of ways to share the gospel without making it sound like the same every single week. I don't know if you've ever done that. So let's just try and I thought, something, something is wrong. So I, I went to see her. And she was this loveliest lady, really lovely lady. And we sat and we chatted. And I said to her, so Jane, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And what are you thinking about Jesus? And she was like, oh, I think this is great. And that's great. And yeah, I can see that Jesus is the son of God. And I, I was like, right, okay, this is not adding up to why you are holding yourself back from becoming a Christian. And I said to her, what is it that's stopping you making the decision to become a Christian? And um, actually what she said to me was, oh, Faith, I'm not a good person like you. She obviously didn't know me that well, just being honest. And then she said, and I'm not good like the people in church, which is, if you've ever even visited my church, is a stretch to call us a good bunch of people. <laughs> we're, quite, we're quite a bunch of, anyway, that's enough of that. But it didn't speak about how good we were. It certainly didn't speak about how good I was. It spoke about what she thought about herself. And she said, I really want to become a Christian, but I'm just not good enough yet. And it was the first time in my life I've really heard someone say it out loud like that. I've known many times where people so obviously feel that. They feel, no, I couldn't do it. I couldn't be good enough. But she actually said it. And we had a wonderful conversation. I was able to open up the gospel that I had already shared and other people had shared with her many times before in the previous six months. But it, something fell down from her eyes and it became real. And what she realized is what this criminal realized this day, is that no matter how good we try to be, all our efforts to be good enough to reach up and pull God down don't work. But that is irrelevant because God already has reached down and all we need to do is take a hold of his hand and he pulls us up to him. And that is what Jesus is focused on in the cross. He is focused on us. And so in that moment, I just think of the pain and the agony and the betrayal and the mocking and everything going on and it must have been incredibly noisy as well and in the moment he turns to one person a criminal not even a good person like a, a known bad person who is being justly executed and he turns the full beam of his love on that man and that's so Jesus you see, Easter is about love. And it starts as God's love for each of you individually. And if you don't know Jesus today, maybe you're like my friend Jane, you don't feel good enough. Or maybe there's just something. Maybe you don't feel like you really need Jesus. Maybe I'm, I don't know. But whatever that thing is, 
Jesus would love to take it out of the way because he loves. And all our excuses and all our shame and all our problems and all our not good, of, good enough, none of it matters to Jesus. And Jesus turns to the criminal and says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. The smartest decision I believe that any and every human being makes is the moment where we turn to Jesus and say, help me. However we say it. That man said, remember me, because he thought that was the best that he'd be able to get. I can remember at 18, just saying, Jesus, I just want you. I just feel like I'm definitely made for more than my nice middle-class life. I think it's you. You'll have prayed your own prayer. And if you haven't, you can do that today because it really doesn't take a very smart prayer. My prayer wasn't very smart at 18. I knew nothing. And in that moment, Jesus turns and focuses his full gaze, his full beam on you. Jesus also dies for the world, for every person who ever lived and will live and does live. Jesus loves our world. We prayed today for our world, but Jesus is in pain for the state of many of the things in our world as well. And while we don't have answers to many things, we know that Jesus has the world in his hands. He has a plan. So I just want us to finish by just thinking today, how does that apply to me? Honestly, maybe there's some of you, you just got dragged along here or you just popped in and you're thinking, wow, that's... That's a lot. Maybe you would put yourself in the crowd. I mean, my dad would definitely put himself in the crowd, bless him. Um, Him and Richard, they'd be in the crowd. We've all been numbered among the mockers, haven't we? At some point in our life, we've all said, I don't need you, Jesus. I did it for 18 years. I didn't always know I did it, but I lived a life that said, I don't need Jesus. When I heard about Jesus, I was like, why would anyone do that? I don't need Jesus. I'll just do it myself. Some of us do a lot of stuff ourselves before we finally come to the point where the criminal got to where we think, I think I need a bit of help. And today you can connect with anybody in our, we're going to have a a prayer team, but they don't even have to pray for you if you you think that's too weird. You can just go and chat to them and they can tell you more about Jesus. And perhaps you live in the crowd and you haven't quite made your decision about Jesus. You're not mocking, but you're just not sure. Well, that's okay. And my question to you today would be, what is stopping you becoming a Christian? And I'd be really happy to speak to anyone who feels that they're in that place. And then the vast majority of people in this room, we have decided to follow Jesus. And here's the question to us. Do we really believe that we are fully loved? Do we really believe that we are good enough because of what Jesus did on the cross? Or are we still, at times, trying to do it ourselves? Are we carrying some secret shame, secret guilt, secret something? Are we perhaps feeling we're a little different? And I know we all look nice on the surface. Most of us can do a really good job on the surface. But I know enough now to know that most human beings, many human beings are carrying deep pain. And Jesus would love to come into every part of our lives and take that away. And I have seen people forgive the unforgivable, let go of the unlet goable, 
and be healed. I have seen many things. I'm married to somebody who's done a lot of prayer for healing and evangelism. I've seen loads of people's lives transformed by Jesus. I've seen amazing miracles. I know what Jesus can do. But there is no greater miracle in my own opinion than when somebody who does not love themselves, who does not believe they're good enough, has the love of God flood their heart and change their opinion of themselves. And when I say flood, it's normally a two or three year flood before you can even start to turn that tide, but it can be turned. So let's stand up this morning. Let me pray for you. And then we're going to have our wonderful worship team come up and just give us a moment. Some of us want to respond in worship. Some of us think, I feel a bit jagged. I need someone to pray for me. Something Faith said touched something a bit raw inside me. Some of you who don't know Jesus think I'd like a conversation with that strange woman or somebody else. They're less strange over there than I am. I can almost guarantee that. And let's put our lives before Jesus if you're up for that. Maybe you want to hold your hands out and just ask him, come and show me. Where am I needing more of the cross to flow into my life so I am more of the person that Jesus died for me to be? Holy Spirit, we invite you into our lives. We give you permission to fill us, to flood our being, to lead us into all truth, to show us where we've been holding back from you, where we have been believing lies that we are not good enough, that this doesn't apply to us and that doesn't apply to us. Holy Spirit, we allow you permission into places where shame is hiding and guilt is hiding and all those things which love to remain in dark places. And we also ask you, Jesus, this week, to flood us with courage. We live in a world where so many of the people that we love and live alongside don't know you and are living without you. And we long for the courage to be people who will let our light shine. Amen.